This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk, directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Sarah Fort discusses The Sprouted Kitchen, Bowl and Spoon, her new cookbook about one-dish meals. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese whets our appetites for the London Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. In the fiction side, we've got a new number two. Uh, It is the third book in the NYPD Red series by James Patterson and Marshall Karp. And uh, it's got a really creative title. It's called NYPD Red 3. So they've just given up on finding up on titles. <laughs> individual titles for these books. Um, and it's just uh, it's just the series. And if you read the series, then you'll like the book. And if not, then tough luck, right. I guess. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and the NYPD Red is the elite, highly trained task force assigned to protect the rich, the famous, and the connected. So this is basically wealth porn with mm-hmm. a thriller plot. Right. And uh, if that's the sort of thing you like, then you'll like that sort of thing. Uh, moving down a little bit on the list, uh, we have A Dangerous Place by Jacqueline Winspear oh. at number seven. Um, this is set in 1937. It's the 11th book in the Maisie Dobbs story, uh, Maisie Dobbs series. And uh, this time there's a brutal murder in the British garrison town of Gibraltar, uh, which leads the the private independent investigator into what they call a web of lies, deceit, and danger. So it's it's got this international thriller vibe. It's you know toward the end of the interwar period. You right. can really see World War Two looming on the horizon, uh, and she is traveling around from India, England, uh, and now Gibraltar. And so there's a, there's a lot going on here. They're, they're, it's a very atmospheric series. Yeah, and we've been talking about a few novels recently on the bestseller list that have been set in this time period between the uh, the two world wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh there's there's a lot to look at in its parallels to the present day. I think that that sense of sort of ever present tension but not sure quite what's going to break it. Right. And uh I I think there's a lot of interest there for yeah. current readers. Uh, moving down a little bit on the list, uh, at number 20 is Housefrau uh, by Jill Alexander Esbaum. I wanted to single this out. We gave it a starred review. Uh, Esbaum is a poet, but this is her debut novel. And uh, we say that uh, she proves that there is still plenty of territory to cover in the story of a woman who is a good wife mostly uh, and uh, she really looks at the conflict between the protagonist's desires and her tightly circumscribed world but she doesn't uh, blame social limitations she really says this this woman is reaching far for far more than she could possibly have uh, and so we say this novel is masterly as it moves towards its inescapable ending and Anna is likely to provoke strong feelings in readers well after the final page uh, so it sounds like good dramatic fun. 
and just a few notches below that is Prudence by Gail Carriger. Um, this is the, the first book in the, the new series set that, that ties into her very popular uh, steampunk series. So uh, her, her first books were the Parasol Protectorates. Um, they combine Victorian England with some fanciful technology and also werewolves and vampires. Ah, uh, right. So there's a lot of fun, a lot of very sort of slapstick, right. madcap adventure and uh now there's the second generation so the children of the the protagonists of the first series have grown up and they're going out on their own and this is also i believe her first book in hardcover oh so wow it's exciting to see it making its way Fantastic. up the hardcover list well let's see in uh non-fiction uh the same number one last week is again this week uh dead wake the last crossing of the lusitania eric larson uh he sold nearly seventy-five thousand copies to date so wow going down the list a little bit we have at number three uh debut the hormone reset diet heal your metabolism to lose up to 15 pounds in 21 days uh this is by sarah gottfried she's a gynecologist who wrote the best-selling the hormone cure she specializes in integrative medicine and, and helps women balance their hormones uh in an effort to combat food addiction we say her chatty encouraging woman-to-woman tone makes a very challenging diet plan seem quite doable as does an appealing layout with boxes, illustrations, and tables. We say this diet guide seems certain to hit bestseller lists, and there you have it. Next up, Gretchen Rubin, Better Than Before, Mastering the Habits of Our Everyday Lives. She's the uh, author of the best-selling uh, book, The Happiness Project, uh, a few years ago. And this one, she returns with this, uh, what we say is a fun and informative self-help tome on the ways we unthinkingly shape our lives with habits. Uh, we say she comes across as quirky, a know-it-all friend who really, really wants to help you improve your life. So that's at number six on the list. Um, we have a book at number 12, ASAP Science Answers to the world's weirdest questions, most persistent rumors, and unexplained phenomena by Mitchell Moffat, teaming with Greg Brown, the founders of the ASAP Science. They're a pair of Canadian 20-somethings whose highly clickable YouTube videos bring science to younger adults and older teens. And this is at number 12. They, they, um, uh, they have some chapters titled Will Dancing Get You Laid? The Scientific Hangover Cure and the Science of Morning Wood. So, um, yes. For we, a much we can younger, identify the yeah, audience. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And finally, since we we will be having Sarah Fort on the uh, show, uh, cookbook author, I just want to talk about another cookbook. It's at number 22, Back in the Day Bakery, Made with Love by Cheryl Day and uh, Griffith Day. Uh, this is a follow-up to the best-selling book, Back in the Day Bakery. And uh, these are just pretty much down-home recipes that the authors have been making in their Savannah, Georgia uh, bakery. And that's what we have on the nonfiction list. I did notice something interesting while I was looking at the list, which is that uh, there's a new number two. Uh, it's its first week on the list, except that it's not. Uh, this is a book that was published in November, right. and it's Laura Ingalls Wilder's uh, Pioneer Girls, her annotated autobiography. Mm-hmm. Now, um, looking at the numbers that we get from Nielsen, last week it sold about 1,000 copies, and this week it sold nearly 19,000 copies. I have no idea what would have driven it suddenly up right. to number two, but um, that's that's one of those really interesting phenomena do you think there there was a review do you think yeah i imagine yeah i think i think there's probably a review uh i haven't seen it but Mm -hmm. um now this is kind of jogging my memory right there so huh so that's uh that's always interesting yeah 
when that happens. Um, and as you mentioned, we're having Sarah Fort on the show today, and I'm very excited for that as a way to wrap up our cookbook month. Yes, exactly. Well, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, as we just said, Sarah Fort tells us how to savor big spoonfuls of whole foods. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ilyasa Shabazz, author of X, a novel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Sarah Fort on the line. Her new book is The Sprouted Kitchen Bowl and Spoon. Sarah, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. Uh, So tell us the origin of the name Sprouted Kitchen. Um, Hugh, my husband, who does the photography for the blog and the book, um, made the blog for me as a gift for my birthday. Um, Sprouted Kitchen was the name of the dream restaurant that I said I would open one day, that I would just have a big outdoor patio and lots of salads and things in bowls, and people would hang out and take things to go. And I was just said I would call it the Sprouted Kitchen. And so when he made a blog for me, he just kind of assumed that, that would be the name of the blog. If that was going to be my restaurant, then that would be the name of the blog. And so, so tell us about this blog. What, so, so your, your your husband Hugh started it for you, knowing that uh, you, like you said, you had this dream. What, what was your uh, uh, your initial post? What were you writing about? It's sort of strange because now there's thousands and thousands of food blogs, and it's a way that people make a career, and it's a, a big thing. But at that time, I only read two blogs. I didn't know that it was such a big deal. And I was working sort of a boring office job, and Hugh made it for me as sort of a creative outlet, so I had something to look forward to and was more positive about something than hating my job. Mm -hmm. So he made this for me, and he took pictures, and I would, you know, make a recipe and share it. And at that time, I cooked casually. I, I don't know, I would submit recipes online to little magazine stuff just for fun, but I'm not classically trained. I'm not professional by any sense of the word but I cooked at home and I liked it and I learned things and I felt like I wanted to share something so we started it and and I still I love that I have somewhat of a community and people who talk back and make my food it's a really special thing how long ago did you start the blog and and the I have another question what were the two blogs that you were reading um almost six years ago so it'll be six years in May um, the two blogs I was reading at the time were um, Smitten Kitchen and 101 Cookbook. Mm-hmm. This is a more vegetarian blog. Both quite popular, and they've been doing it for a long time. So um, you've now turned your blog posts into two cookbooks. The first was A Tastier Take on Whole Foods, and this one is Bowl and Spoon. How do you go through your posts and decide what should go in a cookbook? What's, what's worth putting on paper? Um, I actually, in this one especially, I think there's maybe only two things that are actually from the blog. Oh, I see. So many, so many recipes are available online now, and it's free, and they're easy to find. Um, I don't think you can replicate again on the printed page. So these are more the same style as what is on the blog, but they definitely are unique. And a lot of what I'm doing on the blog now is um, just changing up things from magazines that I want to try or from other people's cookbooks and the things in Bowl and Spoon are original, different recipes from what's on the blog. So tell us about the concept of Bowl and Spoon. Finding that that was just sort of the way that we were eating on 
a regular weeknight basis that I was kind of throwing in leftovers of a whole grain or making a big tray of roasted vegetables. And I really like making different dressings and sauces just to kind of jazz up sort of what is around. And I know that that may sound like a lazy way of cooking, but I think it's actually it's common. That's what people are doing. And that's sort of the message I always wanted to send in my work via books or the blog is I want people to eat real food. And I, we live in a culture of convenience of what is fast and quick. And I wanted to provide recipes that didn't take forever where things were accessible, but they were healthy. They were real food. They didn't come from a package. And so bowl and spoon is kind of a, I think it's a casual way of cooking and it's familiar to our life. And so that's kind of where the idea came from was that it was, I hate to use the, organ, the word organic, sounds very cliche in context of my work, but it, it was what was happening at our house. And so that's what I wanted to write about. It, it happened organically in the sense that it was just a part of your life. Yeah. You mentioned reading vegetarian cooking blogs, but the recipes in here look very vegetarian friendly, but they're not all vegetarian. How do you how do you kind of balance that? What do you see as your approach? I didn't want to pigeonhole myself necessarily as a vegetarian cookbook. I feed my husband and we entertain a lot and I find that a vegetarian is actually a pretty small group of people. Mm-hmm. Um so as much as I eat that way when I'm cooking for other people or my family, that isn't the way that I always cook. And so I try to keep things mostly produce-focused with in mind that that's a small percentage of the population that doesn't eat any meat. So there's a couple of fish recipes and a chicken and a turkey. I mean, it, it's mostly vegetarian, but I still wanted to keep it pretty general for everybody. So these are vegetable recipes for omnivores. Yeah, there's definitely a few meat things in there, but I kind of tried to hit every sort of eater, especially now I'm sure you've you've been watching that dairy or gluten or everybody kind of has something that they don't eat. Mm-hmm. So I tried to have something in there for everyone. Yeah, it's 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 quite a, a wide variety and a lot of different cultures, too. Like you have za'atar roasted carrots. You clearly draw from a lot of cultural concepts. Um, what inspires you? Gosh, that question, I get asked that a lot, and I still don't know that I have a good answer. Um, I am a part of a CSA program over at South Coast Farms near where I live, and I get a veggie basket. So I've always said that I feel like getting that is what inspires me because I'm given this big basket of produce and then kind of have to figure out how to use that. So um, I think I am frugal and I am generally a, a sort of a, I hate waste. It's like a pet peeve of mine. So I try to use what I have. So I end up making things and being creative based on what's on hand. So let's talk about some of these bowls. I see you've uh, uh, broken down your book into kinds of bowls like morning bowl, snack bowl, and uh, big bowl. Um, give us a couple of ideas, a couple of examples of recipes for uh, each one. Let's say, let's start off with the uh, breakfast bowl. Um, this one is hard. I eat a good amount of eggs, and I know not everybody likes to start off with eggs. I'm usually really hungry in the morning. My husband is usually more of a sweets person. So most of them in the breakfast chapter do have an egg on it or an egg involved because that's sort of what my 
my food is. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really love the olive oil granola that's in the book. We always have that around. That's kind of a, a breakfast and a snack food. Um, anyway, there's, there's the oatmeal, but that's pretty commonplace around here as well. I think that bowl sort of elicits some sort of comfort and I think you get that a little bit just as much in the breakfast bowls as you would a dinner bowl. One one recipe stands out for me right here is the baked eggs. You were just talking about the eggs with barely creamed greens and mustardy breadcrumbs. Uh, tell us about how you came up with that. I mean, actually, in the head note, it um, was an idea from, I want to say it's the Bon Appetit recipe. Right. And um, the I don't like super creamy things, but I think, you know, cheese and a little cream definitely has its place in making things a little bit more of a treat and more luxurious. So this is sort of a lightened up version of what was in a Bon Appetit um, recipe and I have the breadcrumbs on there for crispiness and it's easy for me to make those for more than one person because you get little ramekins or small little baking dishes and I can do all the greens and, and pop the egg on there on top and put it in the oven. It's hard to find breakfast recipes that you don't have to make to order. So this is actually a good recipe when you're feeding four or so because everything can kind of be baked at the same time. Hmm. Now, I'm, I'm the opposite of you. I'm not much of a breakfast eater. Are there lighter recipes in there uh, or things that possibly have a, a make-ahead component? Because I'm a night owl, so I would really mm-hmm. like to cook breakfast the night before and then just sort of stagger yeah. out and grab it in the morning. I know it's for a small seasonal window, but there's a flourless stone fruit crumble in there that it's basically a crumble like you would make a dessert, kind of a crisp, but it's much less sugar and it's a little more wholesome. Mm. And so you make it just like a crumble, but it's kind of like a granola-ish topping and then the baked fruit inside. And I like having that in advance because you can just take out a scoop, warm it up however you'd like, and then I'll just put a big dollop of plain yogurt on top. And it feels just like a different take on kind of a fruit and granola sort of bowl. But I think that's something you can make in advance. But I totally understand the non-breakfast people. I'm not pressing breakfast on anyone. (laughs) But that sounds great. Dessert for breakfast. Yes, that's what I'm telling you is allowed. (laughs) (laughs) So I see you also make your homemade, you've got a recipe for homemade ricotta. Um, How did you go about doing that? What do you, uh, and what do you use that in, in your recipes? Um, I usually use it on toast, um, just a nice fresh piece of grainy bread and use it as a spread on top of toast. Um, and we'll put fruit on top or maybe a little honey. Um, I also use it in, in one of the bigger bowl recipes as a turkey meatball recipe. So those are sort of the go-to uses for it. Great. And so, uh, uh, let's talk about the, uh, the big bowls now. Now you talked about, um, uh, you and your husband entertaining quite a bit there. Uh, when, when you serve dinner, do you sometimes serve them in bowls, uh, to company or is this just when, when you all are relaxing? Um, it sort of depends. I, I found that I do it more so in the winter time mm-hmm. because I can do like soups and like I said, like I think a bowl elicit some sort of comfort feeling and so I was doing a lot of bowls for that but I'm also finding now since the book even we have a big huge table in our backyard I just recently did a party where we did a big thing of tortilla soup and then everybody kind of added their toppings that recipe is in the book as well 
that it was it doesn't have it doesn't have to be a winter time thing. I think sometimes we get stuck in thinking that, but soup is a great way to feed them. I had eight people over. I made a huge pot of soup, and it it got everybody through the whole dinner. It was affordable. It didn't take me a ton of time to prepare. That when I have people over. It's less dishes for me. It's, I don't have to worry as much about serving platters and stuff. I'm, I have more fun, I think. If I'm more relaxed, other people are more relaxed. And having food in one single vessel mm-hmm. is just all around more comfortable. And you can also make for leftovers that way, too. We do a lot of uh, weekend cooking in my family where the idea is to make a big pot of something and um, eat it basically all week. So that that also works when you have those bulk recipes like soup. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's a great idea. Well, I see you have a recipe here for a hippie bowl, which is which is like a, a meal. You've got um, uh, your grains and uh, uh, tofu and vegetables and it looks like tahini sauce in here. Um, that must be a pretty, pretty uh, popular one. Yeah, I have been asked about that one a lot. That is actually what I think I thought the whole book would be like mm-hmm. is it would be all some sort of combination of grains and a protein and vegetables and stuff like that. But I was finding that to get a little bit repetitive and hard to make all of those look different. And so it did kind of get more variety from there. But the hippie bowl is, I think, what I, the cornerstone of what I think like a bowl food would actually be for me would be to have these kind of four different components. Mm-hmm. So it right. doesn't take me a lot of extra time because a number of those components are usually leftovers for us. But if you were to start from scratch, that is kind of how I see it happening. It's a vegetable, a grain, a sauce, a protein, and then you get little nibs of everything in a bite. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Sarah Fort, author of The Sprouted Kitchen Bowl and Spoon. Uh, So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about how you moved from blogging to books. Um, It was an unexpected approach um, by an editor at 10 Speed Press that kind of put the bug in my ear. Um, I didn't go to cooking school. I am not really that great of a measurer. I didn't set out with a blog thinking that at one point I would do a book. Um, I don't know. I think it kind of surprised me that they thought what I was doing was going to be ready to be on a printed page. Um, But I do believe that things kind of fall into place at the right time and it was going to be a challenge and it would be something that I could work on with Hugh. And I didn't exactly know what I wanted to be doing work-wise. So I think this fell in my, this opportunity sort of fell in my lap because of the blog and they believed that I could do something and that was empowering enough for me. So I just said, okay, I'm going to do it. And you just, it's basically the same sort of work I'm doing for the blog, but I just try to be a little bit more perfectionist about 
measuring and stuff because on a blog you could always go back and change it if you accidentally wrote one teaspoon instead of a half a teaspoon where in a book you need to make sure that you're right the first time. And so you said 10Speed published the first one and uh, you published your second one with them. Um, what was that experience like? Um, it's neat. I didn't really have much of an expectation because I didn't know anything about the book publishing process. Um, they've been so gracious in answering a lot of questions from me, but I basically sort of just assumed, you know, I would just compile a bunch of different blog posts and they have designers there who are really talented in making the book look like a great piece and giving feedback and helping me kind of learn the ropes. So it's been me looking at books and sort of seeing what I wanted, plus them leading me how on earth you do this. So um, your husband's been your partner all the way through, obviously, in all these ventures. He started the blog for you, and also he does photography for your books. Is it easy to work with him uh, in addition to having the, the marital relationship? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually, is, it's funny, it, it's the same conflict every time, because neither of us are really food stylists, and it's a lot mm. easier for a blog because you're giving, like, eight different pictures to explain a recipe versus with a book, you get one photo and you don't want it to look stale. I want things to look natural and approachable. So it's, we always get to the final photo and he'll be frustrated or I see it going one way. I, I, I think I like things piled really high in the middle of a bowl. And I don't know, it's, it's maybe minutia of how you food style, but neither of us, are really trained in that we're just sort of winging it and so we end up getting in some little tips about how we thought it should look but at the end of the day it works out and I always threaten him that I'm going to hire someone else to replace him but I would never really do that I just like to <laughs> act like I have the upper hand and tell him I'm going to fire him but <laughs> I, 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 I don't actually know what I would do without him so no it definitely has its fair share of of conflicts, but I think it's a lot easier to fight with your spouse because you know how than it would be for me to work with a stranger. And presumably he's your chief recipe tester too. Yes, he is. I, I probably should have a few more eaters around on a regular basis and soon my son will, I mean, actually it'll be years before he can actually have a valid opinion about these things, but it is nice to have him around because he's a very detail-oriented person, mm. so he can taste things that I would kind of eat anything. Like if it was a little overcooked, I, I'll eat it anyway versus he'll say, I think I needed five minutes less, blah, blah, blah. So he actually probably has a fallback career if he really needed one <laughs> as a food tester. <laughs> so you worked uh, on an organic farm. When was this and for how long and what was it like? Um, that was the second half of my time in college, which was in San Luis Obispo, California, um, that I didn't grow up, um, I didn't know if you maybe breezed over the intro of the book, but I didn't really grow up in a super cooking family. Um, it was more quick and convenient space. So when I was in school and cooking for myself, I felt like, how do I be healthy? But all I really know is things that are convenient. So it has to be another way. And I ended up taking an organic farming class 
and they had led me towards the organic farm on campus. And it wasn't for money. It was just you got paid in vegetables. And I figured, hey, why not? I mean, the frugal part of me was like, well, if I get food, that's kind of like money. So I started working there, and it just opened my eyes to a whole different way of eating and cooking and seasonality and free-range animals. It was it was just different. I live in suburbia, South Orange County. There isn't really anything like that down here, but on campus, it was just, it's a very agriculture-based school, and they have a lot of space up in that area of California for things like farming, and I just learned a lot, and I kind of fell in love with the process. It's just it's romantic, for lack of a better word. So what was the, on the organic farm, what, what were you raising or growing, and what were your, were your uh, responsibilities there? Which, what was your favorite part of it? And I didn't do a whole lot of the actual physical farming of it. I was more involved in the harvesting and the cleaning and putting together of the CSA basket, mm-hmm. the, the um, community-supported agriculture, and I'm sure you guys probably have them in New York, too, mm-hmm. where... They put baskets together. So I was more a part of that program, which I'm glad because I'm more of a relational person than I am a physical labor person. So I got to meet people and talk to different families who would tell me what they were doing with the vegetables. And it it was neat because they would some people would bring, I don't know, mushrooms that they were growing, and then they would get their baskets. And it was just so communal and I loved being a part of it for that way and I think that was also a romantic part of the process. So you now live in Laguna Beach, which is uh, pretty much south of L.A., um, and so much has changed in L.A. cooking in the last decade, I mean, even in the last five years. Can you tell us about this change and, and how it's affected your own approach to cooking and to eating? Um, I have a 10-month-old, so to be honest with you, we don't really go out to dinner mm-hmm. <laughs> anymore that often. So as far as things changing, uh, what do you mean exactly by that? The way uh, uh, people uh, maybe approach are approaching food. I mean, there are some new restaurants opening up, which are very seasonal. And L.A. didn't, for the longest time, have that reputation. But but I just want to see if there was a change in, in how people approach uh, food now, if it's, if it's any different than before. I think that... In all the farm-to-table thing becoming very trendy, mm-hmm. I think you see more more than just, like, steak and potatoes and richness being what people go out to dinner for. I think there's just as much of a draw for people who want to eat healthy and those places that have very produce-focused meals and gluten-free, dairy-free options, etc., while still being a nice dinner out. It's not like you have to go eat at a health food deli in order to get something that's super health conscious. I think there's plenty of nice, trendy, beautiful restaurants that are doing wholesome sort of food, especially in L.A. and the West Coast. And I'm sure there's that on the East Coast as well. Um, But I just think there's more of a variety, and I think there's an audience that's visiting and buying food from places that are doing lighter things. 
So the word healthy can mean a lot of different things to different people. Uh, it can mean avoiding allergens. It can mean uh, low sodium or high protein or low protein. You know, everybody's got a different approach. What's the philosophy behind your approach? Um, you've got a lot of fresh produce, whole grains. Tell us about that. I think healthy can mean so many different things. And I don't think there is one definition. I don't, I think people need to find what works for them in in a moderate kind of way. And then you do what works for you. I mean, I'm a very, I hate conflict and <laughs> I don't stick to very strong opinions because of that, but I don't think eating meat or not eating meat is the right way per se, or dairy is the worst thing or the best thing. I think you kind of try different things and see how you feel good. And you just stay in tune with, what your body is telling you and then you go from there. I think your your diet should be mostly vegetables and it shouldn't contain a ton of meat and not a ton of dairy, but all those things in moderation is better because then you're not, not living your life because you have a strict, strict program. I think moderation with food is sort of where the success lies in long-term habits of eating well. So I feel like my style is Mostly produce focused. Sometimes there's a little bit of protein. I usually always put a sprinkle of cheese on my salads and stuff. And I'm sure I could always be healthier, quote unquote, but I want people to enjoy food for the pleasure of eating. It's not doesn't always need to be dietetic. So I think it's just sort of finding a moderate balance within that. So what's up for you next? Uh, do, you, do you have another cookbook in the works? Did you plan a second cookbook when you were doing the first one, or did you think it was going to be one and done? I didn't. I don't know if I would say I thought it was going to be one and done, but I didn't know that it was going to be as successful as it turned out being. I don't even think 10 Speed Press even really thought that. So we started the conversation about the second one, and I wasn't opposed to it. I didn't think I was, like, ready for that per se, but I figured, hey, if I have something that people want, then I'm going to keep doing that. So I do have an idea for a third one, but I'm not quite ready for that yet. I think I'm a little creatively depleted, especially mm. we bought a house and we had a kid and I just don't really have the passion in me right now to start another one, but I definitely have the idea and desire to do it eventually. I'm just not jumping on it quite yet. So how long does it take to put together a book like this, especially since you said most of the recipes are new? I, because I do other freelance work on the side, I do some recipe development and I teach some classes and I do a little catering thing and I'm a mom. I can't dedicate full time to creating the book. So this past one, I had a year to get the manuscript together and that did, that covered all the recipes and the photographs and the testing and the editing. So it was a year on my side, and then there's probably another eight-ish months on the side of 10-Speed Press where they do all the marketing and the printing and design and things like that. So it's really a, gosh, almost a two-year process, and mm. that's partly, I'm sure you could do it faster. I mean, I took longer so I could do other things, but yeah, it was. we started this two years ago. Wow. And it sounds like you've you've got a lot on your plate that you like doing a lot of different things at once rather than being super focused on one particular career. 
You know, I'm reassessing. I thought that <laughs> I think that about myself, but I'm not positive. But I do <laughs> like that I have different options. Um, but now it does kind of feel like a lot. So I don't know if it might be better to hone in on one thing and maybe just write books. But yeah, I like having it keeps me excited. It makes every day different and keeps you from burning out. I think that's what I was finding about an office job was that it was so repetitive that it was boring me to death. So I kind of like doing different things because it stays exciting. Well, it sounds like you've got plenty of excitement in your life and I hope whichever direction you go with things, they work out well for you. Thank you. We've been talking with Sarah Fort and you can find her book, The Sprouted Kitchen Bowl and Spoon in stores right now. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese gets us ready for the London Book Fair. Stay tuned. I'm Kevin Sessoms, author of I Left It on the Mountain, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about the upcoming London Book Fair. Greetings, Rose. Greetings, Mark. Thank you for coming. So um, how's it looking this year? What's the buzz around it? Is there any? You're leaving in two weeks, right? Two weeks? Yeah, just about. That's right. Thanks for reminding me that I really got to get cracking on some of my deadlines here. (laughs) Uh, I think, as usual, the London Book Fair is building up a nice little buzz. You know, it's really sort of the first major international gathering of publishers uh, around the world. There there are many others, but London is really sort of a major milestone. Uh, I think the big buzz building up to this year's fair is its new location. Uh, It's actually moving from its longtime home at Earl's Court, uh, just down the road a little bit, still in West London, to uh, Olympia. Now, the Olympia Center has housed London book fairs in the past, but not this Olympia. They've actually refurbished it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a a special tour last year, just before I was leaving London, uh, with fair organizers. And uh, it's different than the Earl's Court space for sure, but it is really quite lovely. And I think uh, London Book Fair goers this year are really going to appreciate the fact that it has a glass ceiling that's lovely. And not only that, it allows a natural light. So go figure a convention center and a conference with natural light. No, oh. they, they claim that about the Javits Center where we have Book Expo, but somehow it never really feels like any light makes it in. Do you th- is it is it different at this space? It is different at this space because, you know, I've never noticed a shard of natural light, except for <laughs> in the hallways and foyers, of course, uh, of, of Javits. But, you know, I spend so much of my time at BEA uh, and on the, in the lower level in the meeting rooms uh, and so little time on the floor that I've never been able to appreciate that. So tell us what people can expect when they go to London Book Fair. Let's say that you were taking some PW novice who had never been there before. What what would you tell them to expect? Well, you know, it is a trade fair. So, I mean, obviously a lot of what goes on at the London Book Fair is intended for the professional publishing audience. And in that regard, um, a lot of technology will be on display there because the publishing industry, of course, is a digital industry now. Every year you'll see a, a number of new vendors and a number of new solutions providers that will appear 
here, and they'll usually choose someplace like the London Book Fair to debut their new product. Uh, but you'll also see a lot of authors. Um, I, of course, the Publishers Weekly has uh, show dailies that we do at London, and, and right. our listeners can read those for free online uh, the day of the show. The, the full editions will be published on the Publishers Weekly website. Uh, and in those editions, I've interviewed a number of authors. My two favorite this year are Paula Hawkins, who had the runaway number one bestseller, The Girl on the Train. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a, a London journalist. Uh, she'd written four books prior to this under pseudonyms. This was sort of her debut, though, at writing in her mm. as, as herself. Uh, and uh, who could have imagined this? Uh, certainly she didn't. Right. Uh, a number one bestseller. And the other is uh, an author by the name of Atticus Lish who uh, has published a, a novel with a very small imprint uh, called Tyrant. Uh, my friend Gian DiTrapano runs this out of New York City. And this book, I mean, when Gian first signed it up, he came to me and said, you are not going to believe this book. It, it should win the National Book Award. It should win the Pulitzer. It's the most amazing book that I've ever read. And I was like, yeah, Gian, whatever. <laughs> you know, just pushing your authors, great, whatever. And then I got around to reading it, and I was like, you know... He's right. And the Penn Faulkner people also agree he's been nominated as a, as a finalist for the Penn Faulkner right. Award. Um, he's won uh, a Paris Review. I think it was the, the, one of their awards for short fiction this year. I think he's going to be nominated. I think he will be shortlisted for a Pulitzer and for a National Book Award. Um, and the fact that he did this all with the small press with Gian uh, is remarkable. He, of course, is now signed with Binky Urban at ICM. <laughs> so his life is about to change in a big way. But uh, both of those interviews will be running uh, in London at this, at the, in our show daily. So readers can check those out there. Great. Fantastic. So give us a little feel of what the London Book Show, uh, Book Fair might be this time around in the new setting. I mean, obviously, it's going to be a little more light. Is it a bigger space? It's actually about the same square footage, but it's right. in different halls. So what's different about Earl's Court, Earl's Court was this legendary old structure. The Rolling Stones played there. Um, it was, you know, but right. they were, I guess they're tearing it down to build housing. So. Right. Uh, I don't know that they've actually done that yet, but that's the plan, so they needed to find a new home. Olympia is a set of interconnected halls. It has an upstairs that's really kind of cool, like a great big loft that kind of overlooks the main show floor. I think what you're going to hear in the first year, as you will in the first year, anytime there's a change, is a lot of people complaining <laughs> that they don't know where they're going. Um, it's it's new. It's going to be all new to them. Um, but ultimately, I think it's going to be... Um, Nice. I think it's going to be a great change for the London Book Fair. I think it's going to allow them not only to um, come up with new ways and new ideas for using their space, but also to rethink the very essence of the fair itself. Uh, They have a couple of more theaters. Um, They can figure out where to put digital people, maybe mix them in with the, the, the regular publishers on the show floor. Um, so we'll see. I think this year you could probably hear a little bit of grumbling. But overall, I, I'm, I think it's going to work great. So what do you think the issues are? Every fair, uh, everyone, especially you go to, has, has an issue, something in, uh, uh, in publishing, a theme in publishing. What's going to be the talk this time? I think we, almost every conversation that we have now revolves around digital in some way in ebooks. And I think one of the big talks in London this year is going to be, why are ebook sales flattening? Mm. They have been flattening at a dramatic rate. And uh, just this week in, in the upcoming issue of Pub- Publishers Weekly, uh, we report from the latest Nielsen uh, survey that literally ebook sales are now flat. They, they rose 1% over the previous year. Um, I think a lot of issues account for this, probably um, pricing, probably uh, oh. different format issues. Also, there's just a lot of competition all on that same little screen that people have now. Um, so I think probably how why are ebooks flattening and what that means for the industry is probably going to be uh, a big source of 
conversation this year. So a while back, um, we interviewed Naomi Barron, who was talking about how when she surveyed her students, uh, they really actually preferred print books. And what sent them to ebooks were economic pressures, price pressures. Uh, do you think that at some point we're suddenly going to rediscover print and remember that actually people like holding actual print books? I'd love to believe that's true. And, you know, we have seen numbers that say that print for the year overall was up last year. It was up about, you know, a couple percent, a little over 1%. Maybe I can't remember the exact figure. It was up very slightly. But that mostly is from YA, from the John Greens and the Veronica Roths. And if you look at almost every other segment, print is still declining. And in some segments, it's declining quite rapidly. Mm. Uh, But that said, I do think people are discovering print and i think the problem with ebooks is that you know they cost 6.99 and you can buy a mass market paperback for 3.99 so if you just really want to read the book you want to own it pass it on have some more rights in it than just being allowed to look at it on your on your reader um that you will buy print so i think we're still figuring out how how to raise up this new ebook industry and balance it with the legacy of the print book what people are going to prefer or not prefer I really don't know. All I know is that, you know, you've got this screen now where your books and your movies and your games and your Facebook and everything is in the same place. And if it costs seven ninety nine a month to get unlimited Netflix and it costs $13 for a book, you know, mm. you can bet people are going to. And I'll say this about TV and games, too. They're getting a lot better. Mm. I used to feel dirty when I watched television. But you know, <laughs> now I have to say, you know, some of these dramas and some of the new, new series that are coming out make me feel they're pretty literary. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, and a lot of them are actually based on books. The big buzz in in my corner of the world, the genre corner, is that the HBO Game of Thrones series is going to overtake the books and actually will find out the end of the whole story arc on TV before we get it in the books that started the whole phenomenon. Yeah, I saw that. And you know what's interesting about that, too, is that George R. R. Martin is doing, you know, he writes the books and he does the series, right? He writes for the series. He certainly, Mm. yeah, but I think he's focusing on the books because suddenly he's on serious deadline pressure. Yeah, he needs to pick it up, right? <laughs> uh, but it, it's interesting to see that that interplay between books and other visual media. I know so many authors, especially in science fiction and fantasy, who are selling film and TV rights. Um, and now that you know, Netflix, HBO, um, you know, all, all of these Vimeo, everybody's doing their own original series. It's a really good point. And, you know, in London, they've just expanded the book fair to be the London Book and Screen Week. So the week of the London Book Fair is mm. actually an entire week that does, has film and video games and everything. They've really expanded it to be book and screen. Wow. Now, it's still the book fair is still very much the focus of right. that. Everything else sort of flows around it. But, you know, you, the point you make is really important because what I'm seeing, too, is that a lot of writers who consider themselves literary and love books and only want to write books are going to Hollywood now. They are seeing television as viable places for them to take their talents because they're not being hammered into these rote old sitcom formulas. Right. They're being given budgets and they're Mm. being allowed to express themselves in the way they want to. So, you know, that's another challenge for the publishing industry down the road when other creative outlets start sucking away talent that used to go directly into books. But hopefully uh, it'll go the other direction as well. Well, you'll see... Book editions of yeah, or or you know you'll see people like Guillermo del Toro writing novels. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think we are seeing a little bit of a, a a nudge in that direction at least. I wouldn't call it a shift yet. And I think it's all it gone, I mean, that's always been the case, right? You've always seen that interplay between the different 
But, uh, you know, well, let's put it this way. You'll make a lot more money from Hollywood right, right now. That's true. You might on your that's Kindle true. single. So I think the allure to work on more uh, visual projects might be a strong draw for a lot of the most talented writers out there. Now you, you've um, done a lot of coverage of copyright issues here. Uh, is there similar stuff going on in the UK? Is that something that's going to be a topic of discussion? Yeah, it's going to be a huge topic of discussion out there. You know, it's interesting because over the last six or seven fairs, piracy has gone from being like issue number one that people want to talk about to not even coming up in the program very much. Obviously, huh. publishers are still concerned about it, but they're much more interested in coming up with business solutions which is a very positive development. Uh, that said, you're seeing a lot of new proposals for copyright. And in the U.S., we're angling towards some, some kind of copyright reform here, though I doubt you're going to see it even come close to being introduced before 2016. Um, what's really interesting in the U.K. right now is that the VAT tax issue. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but you know France and Luxembourg were essentially charging uh, very low VAT tax rates on e-books because uh, books under the EU tax code are qualify for what's called a super reduced rate. Uh, but the EU court recently ruled that uh, e-books are in fact not products, but digital services. And so they must huh. be charged the full rate. So really? taxes on e-books in Europe are going to skyrocket. The, the I'd say the average EU tax rate for an e-book is going to be about 20 to 22 percent. Wow. So suddenly it's going to be a disaster for e-books right. if uh, they have charged such exorbitant tax sums. So uh, that's a major issue that's going to be uh, under discussion in London this year. Because if the uh, e-book readership is flattening here, uh, it, it's always been traditionally low in Europe. I was just in Italy and e-book sales are, are almost non-existent. Italy's a great example. You know, Italy had actually just five months ago had uh, dropped its VAT tax from 22% to 4%. Uh, and its mm. ebook industry has been struggling. It's not been able to get off the ground there. Uh, and now it's going to be forced to raise those ebook right. rates right back up right. again. So just as Italy might have started getting some momentum on ebooks, right back, right back down. Unless EU policymakers come together uh, and change the law, which seems like it's going to be complicated. Right. Yeah, and I've I have some friends who run small online ebook selling uh, businesses. You know, maybe they're small presses who individually sell ebooks, and they say it's just impossible now to 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 get a system that will accurately charge tax depending on where the person is because uh, the new regulations are so complicated within the UK and also just generally over the EU. That is another really good point. That is a super complicated process. It's almost, in fact, we hear this a lot in the international conferences that some people don't even sell in other territories just because yep. of the dealing with, you know, figuring out the paperwork and, and collecting the proper taxes is a huge issue. Uh, and the consequences are high if you mess up. Yeah. Wow. So I, I expect you'll be seeing small business people in particular talking about that. I think small business people is going to be the real sort of lifeblood of the fair this year. Self-publishing has been a huge deal for the past couple of years in London. Uh, and when I say self-publishing, I'm including these little micro imprints in there mm -hmm. too. Uh, the last three years, they've had this little author stage. Uh, last year, they called it Authors Headquarters, Authors HQ, and I couldn't get into any of the presentations. Really? They were just jam-packed, uh, people waiting, trying to crane their necks in around uh, these little barricades to see what was going on. Uh, I expect it's going to be a, a big deal this year, too. Wow, wonderful. Well, it sounds like it's going to be an exciting time. I uh, look forward to your reports. 
London in spring. It's tough to be me, right? <laughs> <laughs> we may ask you to come on again to talk about the experience and see how all of this uh, played out. I'd be happy to, of course. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. It's always lovely to have you on the show. My pleasure, Rose and Mark. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Joshua Davis. I'm the author of Spare Parts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 